You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Okay, I'd like to welcome you to our seminar on um, national uh, continental vision, national interest. This is the second of three seminars that we have on the subject. My name is Mark Bassen. I'm a professor at um, Södertörn University and at Uppsala Universities, and I'm a associated research fellow here at the Utrikspolitiska uh, Institutet. Um, let me just introduce the session today with a few words, then I'll introduce our panel and we'll get underway. I'm not sure how many of you <clears throat> will remember when the term Eurasia uh, first began to be used, uh, but because it's become a very popular term and a very common one today. But it began, I can tell you, about 25 years ago, uh, immediately uh, at the end of the Cold War and more specifically with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, the term Eurasia, which was a very unfamiliar term, extremely unfamiliar term at the time, began to be used because for in the field of, uh, sort of Soviet studies and Soviet affairs, there had to be a new term for Soviet. And you couldn't use the term Soviet anymore. And so there was a lot of flailing, and they came up with the term Eurasia. Uh, I uh, am a Russian specialist. I was a Russian specialist at the time. And I followed this with great interest because the term Eurasia uh, was very useful as an immediate kind of replacement. And uh, it was picked up at universities. The, uh, uh, Diplomatic uh, community used it as well, certainly the American diplomatic community and in other countries as well. And of course, in the former Soviet Union, it became popular. But what was interesting about it, because it was new and because it was vague, it had different meanings. And even in the context of Russia, these various meanings began to be expressed as the term was used in various ways. And this gave a great potency and a strength to the term, because then it could be taken up in different regions of the, former, the, the country and uh, uh, different groups of people. And they could all sort of appropriate Eurasia, and it became meaningful in terms of their own political or identity discourses. And as I said, as a Russian, this was a very fascinating thing to watch. But what I didn't expect, particularly, but what happened then in the years that followed was that the uh, appeal of Eurasia, uh, the, the, this concept and its potency, leapt across borders and uh, came to, if you, if you want to put it that way, to infect or to affect uh, a, a much greater space in many different countries. As Eurasia began to be embraced and become meaningful, uh, really right across the geographical uh, field that we'll see, we'll see a map of. I'm sorry, I'm not showing you one now, but we'll see a map of that in a little while of Eurasia. And this then is, I find, uh, someone who studies kind of the meaning of these terms and how these kind of terms can be, can be valorized in different ways. This becomes a very fascinating and I think a very important process. The term is so widely used today. And this is the this circumstance that I've just described is the background for uh, these seminars uh, that we have, uh, we're holding. This is a collaboration between my University of Sudetern and the Utrechtspolitische Institute working with the three um, uh, programs on one on, uh, it's called Eurasia, but it's actually on sort of post-Soviet affairs, one on Asia, this is the one today, and one on the uh, Near East or on Turkey. And we have three seminars planned. And in each case, we're looking at one particular national context and how Eurasia is seen through these particular eyes. So we've had our first, several months ago, we had our first seminar on Russia. Uh, we're having our seminar today on China. And the third one, which we'll have uh, at some point in next year, we haven't yet programmed a date for that, this will be on Turkey. And, so, and the title, as I say, of the series is Continental Vision, Eurasia, National Interest. That is, how do uh, these different particular national contexts understand the uh, geographical term in different, different ways? It's a very fascinating, as I said, I think in ways a very important uh, question to consider. 
So we have three uh, experts with us. I'm just the moderator. Uh, uh, as I say, I'm a Russianist. I don't know much, too much about China. I'm very interested in hearing. Uh, we have with us, um, in the order uh, that they will speak, Nadej Rolon, sitting here to my left, a senior fellow at, for political and security affairs at the National Bureau of Asian Research, which is a think tank that's based in Washington, D.C., in Seattle. Um, she worked before that for many years as an analyst and advisor on China and East Asia to the French Ministry of Defense. The main focus of her work is China's foreign and defense policy, and uh, more broadly, and more, dare I say, grandly, grand strategy. As she puts it, most recently, the author of a book, Eurasia's, China's Eurasian Century, Political and Strategic Implications of the Belt and Road Initiative, which could not possibly be more relevant to what we're talking about today. I asked her desperately a few days ago to be sure to bring a copy of the book so I could wave it around, which she has done, but she tells me she left it in her hotel. So unfortunately, uh, we don't have it to see, but this is, I'm, I'm sure it's a great work that came out two years ago. Yeah. Her articles and commentaries have appeared in uh, leading journals, the Washington Quarterly, Foreign Policy, the Wall Street Journal, and the World Service, the BBC World Service. Our uh, second speaker is Zhiguang Yin, who is a senior lecturer in Chinese, in Chinese, Chinese language, I guess, at, at uh, Chinese history at the University of Exeter in the UK and uh, at the director of the Global China Research Center at Exeter. He's also a visiting professor at the Eurasian Studies Unit of the Shanghai Interna International Studies University, which is where he and I met um, uh, last summer. He's a founding member and executive board member of Concilium, which is a uh, think tank, uh, policy uh, think tank based in the PRC, established in 2011. His research interests include modern Chinese intellectual and legal history, ethnic minority policy, history of international relations in the 19th and 20th centuries, and China's role in contemporary international politics. I think I better say that in terms of uh, what you're going to talk about today. His most recent book, The Politics of Art, Creation, Society, and Practice of Theoretical Struggle in Revolutionary China, 2014. And uh, so these are our two main speakers. They'll speak for about 20 minutes each. Then I'll give the floor to uh, Bjorn Yerden, who is the director of the uh, uh, program here on China, and, or Asia, I guess it's called, who will offer a commentary. And then we will open it up. And we should have very uh, plenty of time for, uh, for discussion and feedback. So thank you very much for coming. And without further ado, Nadej, please. Thank you, Professor Bassin, and thanks for um, the invitation uh, the, to the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Um, very honored to be here. Um, you mentioned um, the uh, the previous discussions last April about uh, about Russia's vision of uh, of Eurasia, and I think that the speakers really pointed to. Um, a sort of nostalgia underlying uh, Russia's vision for for an interest over current Eurasia. You know, I got the sense from listening to this session that uh, Russia's vision was based on a feeling of loss born out of the collapse of the Soviet Union, like a, an open wound, really, that was not completely healed. Um, so very much uh, nostalgic of the past. And for China, really, the, the vision for Eurasia is anything but the past. It's really turned towards the future. 
um, very re resolutely so, even if, of course, we can find some underlining, underlying reference to the past in the way that the official um, rhetoric presents the vision uh, to the outside world. The One Belt, One Road strategy, which is now officially called a Belt and Road Initiative, encapsulates uh, Beijing's vision for uh, Eurasia. Even if the historical reference is now completely uh, subsumed or, or it has disappeared under the BRI uh, um, acronym, um, the vision harkens back uh, to the ancient Silk Road. You know, the belt is really the Silk Road economic belt. It's the continental component of uh, the initiative. And the road is the reference to the 21st century maritime Silk Road, which is the, the naval component of um, BRI. So really, Silk Road, um, you know, the, the idea is to promote this, um, this reference to a, a time where um, the, the Chinese empire was both prosperous and, uh, and powerful, and uh, it was trading goods and exchanging um, both technologies, ideas, science, scientific knowledge, philosophical and thoughts and religion uh, um, with the other kingdoms along the routes. There was just not just one road. There were many, many different routes uh, in the ancient time, all the way to the Roman Empire at the other end of the Eurasian continent. And so I believe it's not really by chance that uh, the Chinese leadership has chosen this, uh, this historical reference for Xi Jinping's um, signature foreign policy project. It can be easily identified by, by many countries in Eurasia as a shared historical heritage. Um, I think it's as much an effort to project a you know, kind and benevolent image to the outside world as it is a reflection uh, of China's contemporary ambitions for itself, for its rise as a powerful and prosperous great power in the 21st century. So both playing in past and also looking into the future. The Belt and Road plays on the ancient Silk Road theme, but it's not stuck in the past. It's uh, resolutely looking into the future and it gives us a sense of how the Chinese ruling party envisions uh, shaping the broader region and maybe beyond in the direction it wants. Starting with redrawing the geographical map of Eurasia. The Belt and Road comprises six economic corridors that create spoke-like linkages between China, positioned at the center of a hub, and several of its neighboring regions, uh, the China-Mongolia-Russia economic corridor, the new Eurasian Lang Bridge co corridor that goes through Russia all the way to Western Europe, the China-Central Asia-West Asia, West Asia is, uh, is the way the Chinese uh, call the Middle East, uh, the China-Pakistan economic corridor, the Bangladesh-China-India-Myanmar corridor, and the China-Indochina peninsula economic corridor. And in, in addition to those uh, land-linked uh, corridors, there are three blue economic passages that have been outlined in 2017 
uh, the China in the, uh, Indian Ocean, Africa, Mediterranean Sea, uh, Blue Economic Passage, China, Oceania, South Pacific, and lastly, the China Arctic Ocean, Europe, uh, Blue Economic Corridor. In addition to that land portion, that maritime portion, there's also a digital Silk Road and a Silk Road in space. So really what does it tell us, uh, you know, this accumulation of, of uh, different corridors, um, terrestrial, maritime, and, and virtual, almost digital ones? First of all, it really breaks down the traditional geography of Eurasia. Here, in the terms that the Chinese authorities uh, use, there's no mention of South Asia or Southeast Asia. These are concepts that are not there. Um, it really draws a virtual map of the region with China at its heart, a sort of a Sinocentric regional order. That's also very interesting. And it's also, as you can already realize, a very expensive vision um, that includes not only the continental landmass of Eurasia, but also its surrounding waters, the space above, from you know Lis Lisbon to Vladivostok, from the Arctic Circle to the South Pacific Islands. So that's a very expensive vision of Eurasia <coughs> that can be really um, seen from um, just the, the different components of, of the Belt and Road Initiative. Belt and Road is also um, not, not only comprehensive in its geographic dimension, but also it's in its different components. Um, it's not only redrawing the geography of the, of the region, but also um, redefining the terms of um, the regional integration and the underpinning norms and principles. Um, <clears throat> for those of you who have heard already about Belt and Road, you might have heard that it's an uh, um, infrastructure building project. And the focus on this um, infrastructure building activities undertaken under the Belt and Road label um, um, mask the fact that in reality it comprises five links and infrastructure building is just one of them. The first of them is pol policy coordination. Second is infrastructure. Third is trade. Uh, fourth is financial integration. And the, f and the fifth is people-to-people -people exchanges. So there too, you know, you can see that it's not just one portion. It's a very comprehensive um, program. Um, and as far as the, just looking at the infrastructure side, it includes both hard and soft infrastructure. So on the, what I call s hard infrastructure, you, you think about transportation linkages, ports, roads, railways uh, throughout that big uh, region that I mentioned before. I don't want to call it Eurasia anymore because it's much broader than that. Uh, energy, uh, you know, you have projects about uh, pipelines, power grids, um, hydropower dams, etc., as well as uh, information and technology uh, and communicate information technology and communication networks, fiber optic, data centers, satellite constellations. So when you think about infrastructure, all of this apply for Belt and Road. On the softer, soft infrastructure side, 
Um, you have um, part of the Belt and Road is also about creating um, special economic zones, about negotiating trade agreements, tariff agreements, currency swap agreements. Um, beyond the just economic domain, there are also corporations in the security, science and technology, media, um, uh, education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So here again, you have to see that all of this, all of these are building blocks of a greater Chinese influence over the region, and it's not just about building railways. Taken, taken together, all the elements that constitute BRI reflect a vision for a region that is more deeply integrated around China and that will move toward um, what the Chinese authorities call um, community of common destiny or a community of shared future for humankind. That's the, that's the, the official term for it. So there too, you can see that the ultimate objective is not building infrastructure, but fostering this community. Um, and although this term has appeared more than a hundred times in Xi Jinping's public speeches since 2013, there is no official clear definition about this community and what is it and how is it organized uh, exactly. Um, but when you read closely the official documents and also the academic commentary uh, about this concept, it points to an aspiration to shape and redefine the international order and its underpinning norms and values uh, according to uh, the Chinese Communist Party's views. Um, Finally, my presentation wouldn't be complete if I didn't say a word about the geopolitics of Eurasia from a Chinese perspective. For some years, uh, Chinese strategists have argued that the US presence in Asia constitutes an encirclement strategy that uh, is against China and that restricts and strangles, that's the term that those strategists use, it strangles China's strategic space. Um, the US forward military presence and alliance system together with its command of the global oceans have long been seen as posing the most direct challenge to China's security. And in response to that, some Chinese strategists have argued for quite a while that uh, China should uh, seek to preserve a favorable balance of power by enhancing its position on continental Eurasia. So in order to avoid a direct confrontation on China's maritime front in East Asia, to consolidate the position that China has westward on the Eurasian continent where the US presence is weaker. And if this strategy sounds familiar to you, it may be because you are also familiar with the geopolitical theories of Mackinder or Spikeman, who over 100 years ago theorized the idea of competition between continental and maritime powers. At the time, Mackinder was interested mostly in the contest between uh, maritime Britain and continental Prussia. And Spikeman believed that the mobility of maritime powers would ensure that no continental power would be able to dominate the Eurasian landmass. 
history doesn't repeat itself, but it sometimes uh, rhymes. And it's an interesting historical twist that Chinese strategists are once again turning to this continental versus maritime uh, divide and CBRI as the main instrument that can be used as a counter encirclement strategy. Um, meanwhile, uh, the US strategists are responding in kind with the Indo-Pacific strategy uh, that focuses on building a coalition of maritime democratic powers such as Australia, Japan, India, and others in an effort, in an effort to counterbalance uh, the BRI push over the Eurasian continent. So we really are looking at balancing, counterbalancing, re-counterbalancing re strategies here. I think I'll end up with, uh, with that and looking forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, uh We have a, that's right, we have a PowerPoint presentation, I guess. Right, uh, while we're trying to pull up the PowerPoint slides, um, thank you very much, Mark and the Institute for the invitation. It's a great, great pleasure to be here. Um, and um, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an honor to be, uh, to be here and sharing some ideas uh, as a historian. I started my uh, career trained as intellectual historians, which means I'm a victim of grand narrative initially. I believe that uh, things are coherent, uh, history are linear. I believe that there is a logic inherited in. Uh, but um, once I started to uh, do uh, my research and living in, uh, in the Middle East, and I start to come to uh, uh, some sort of a reconciliation that the world is actually messy. So later on, I converted to social history and uh, history of sort of international relations and international uh, law. Um, as, a, as a historian, I'm naturally drawn to the charm of uh, anecdotes. So I'll start my story telling by telling anecdotes. Over here at the back, um, this is a map. Um, send it to, uh, uh, to Xi Jinping as a gift in 2014 when he visited Germany. Of course, this was a map made in 1735 by a German uh, cartologist. Over this map, on this map, we could find a peculiar way of presenting China. Of course, uh, after seeing the picture of this map, there is a, a public row uh, and on the Chinese social media simply because it's not a, a China. It's not a coherent and complete China. It only presents the image of what we, can, uh, what we call it as the 18 provinces, the central part of a high Han-dominant China. The story behind this map, though, to be honest, the making of this map was quite intriguing. Uh, in the 18th century, um, the emperor of China hired a group of missionaries, Jesuit missionaries, to do a survey, a geographic survey of China, particularly in, the, uh, in these areas and also with some sort of attempts to explore what's going on here or as we know today, the, uh, the, central, the central, and, uh, central Asia. Um, naturally, the geographic knowledge at that time would only restrict uh, our understanding of China towards 
this area. But um, so henceforth, consequently, the knowledge produced by those uh, missionaries, Joshua missionaries, disseminated to China, uh, to uh, to Europe quickly uh, in the early 18th century, which fundamentally determines. Oh, I think I. It is better for me to stand over here, I guess. Uh, which pretty much determines the understanding of China at that time among the entire Europeans. Similarly, as we could see the emergence, emergence of the creation of a similar map uh, founded across Europe. This is a French map, which was pretty much showing the similar type of image of China. With the, and this, um, this image of China was known at that time as the empire of China. It's equivalent, similarly, um, a type of knowledge starts, or the type of imagination starts to emerge that there is a separate entity, not only just to include the, uh, um, the, uh, the, the 18, uh, 18 provinces at the coastal area in China, but also the central part of China. This area is known as the Tartar, the Chinese Tartar. Um, and um, it includes today's Central Asia and what is known to, um, 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 by today's audience as the Xinjiang area. The Chinese Tata became such a popular idea that attracts attention from uh, not only the European uh, nations, but also um, uh, uh, Russian. Right? So what's going on in Central, uh, in Central Asia, the Chinese Tatar area? People took a, a particular interest in this area. Later on, you can find that uh, um, a numerous amount of map has been created uh, uh, depicting the Central Asia. And uh, moving to the 19th century, um, the specific uh, uh, British interests began, their, uh, uh, began to show their interest in Central Asia. What they're uh, demonstrating is took a special interest in the trade route that can connect the Punjab area all the way to Tibet and Xinjiang. And a, a similar map you can see created in the late, uh, late 19th century, demonstrating um, a potential trade route that links the British-owned India to China. This is where the idea of Central Asia, or well, why the idea of Central Asia attracts so many, so many uh, Europeans' attention, to find a possible link that breaks the barrier of Himalaya that connects the Europe part, or uh, the Europe-controlled part, to the central part of China. It was roughly, um, well, I would rather start the story uh, of China by going even further back to the 9th century. This is a 9th century Chinese map depicting itself, as we can see, in diff different from the, uh, the map created in the 18th century, the European depiction of, uh, of this area largely focused on the geographic characteristic, uh, largely focusing on the, uh, on the connection that links the different landmarks. Whereas on this map, China seems to pay a specific interest, or the Chinese map creator seems to be sharing a particular interest towards what you can see, the inland river system, the inland um, um, water system. This is, um, well, as this one is a, re a replica of the map, uh, of this map, which is carved on stone in the 9th century. Um, this particular interest towards inland water system uh, was preserved in the Chinese ma map making uh, um, technique uh, all the way until arguably 19th century. 
Here, this is the very first map uh, created in the 14th century showing the Chinese comprehensive, uh, the comprehensive uh, map of, the China, of China or the Chinese uh, Ming Dynasty. Over here, um, we, can, we can see one of the peculiar factors is the area that is largely formed our understanding of today's Eurasia is left empty, whereas here, where the most advanced river system were located was the most detailed um, um, was the most detailed one. Similarly, over here. Well, as moving to the 19th, uh, 19th century, when arguably was the time when the China took a strong geopolitical interest towards uh, its east territory, uh, its west territory, Xinjiang. People might consider that it might be at that time China began to uh, to take on the idea of geopolitics, start to uh, um, to share the interests towards imperial confrontation, or as um, here, this is the map roughly made in the 18, uh, 1880s, um, um, right after the um, the um, um, the pacification of the Xinjiang riots in uh, in, 19, in the late nineteenth century by the Qing Empire. This was the map made after then. Here you can see, interestingly, they still show their keen interest towards the river system and presenting the area as a collection of major agricultural cities situated alongside the inland river. This might be a detailed picture that's showing the exactly the same uh, images. Now, through those, um, through those images, right, what the point I want to make as um, um, here is that unlike the Europeans' interests, uh, Europeans' understanding of geographic space, Chinese understanding of geographic space is particularly focusing on, on agriculture or the, the capability of a land that is cultivatable. And it is specifically interested in self-reliance, as many of the agriculture society would do, and it is particularly interesting in the collection of, uh, of, of people because in order to cultivate a land, you cannot do it single-handedly. You also need a, um, a strong government. You also need a strong society that uh, implement uh, irrigation system, big water hydro system, and also to sort of uh, manage the local taxation issue. Whereas in comparison, in the 19th century, this is an early 20th century map uh, in Europe. That made by British Empire, which particularly focus on, if you pay attention here, the, the maritime trade connection in different areas. Unlike the Chinese interest towards agriculture land, the British, or arguably many of the European trade countries, were interested in trade routes. The geographic connection in uh, the geographic connection in different parts of the world, really their uh, their importance were manifested in the global market. If you're not connected by this uh, this uh, trade route, then you are not necessarily important. So in intriguingly, we can see this is the air, this is the map showing the territory occupied the British Empire, which conveniently located alongside the Trans-Indian uh, Trans Ocean and Trans-Atlantic Ocean trade route. This Trans-Indian and Trans-Atlantic Ocean trade route continues to influence our way to think about the world or the world's connection today. This is a map in 1925. Yes, all right. 
Uh, this is a map uh, made in 1925. Arguably, these trade routes continues to function as the main artery of the global trade today. Now, um, through these maps, these two maps, one uh, another conclusion we want to on, want to make or observation I want to uh, on to make is. It seems like today our way of understanding the world is largely restricted by our way of imagining the world, which is predominantly through trade. As, uh, as we can see through the previous map, the trade connections was not celebrated or it was not manifested or widely celebrated in a Chinese worldview. Whereas um, it might be historically accurate, in, inaccurate to use this trade-created world mentality, um, worldview to, to sort of understand the Chinese behavior. Henceforth, another thing that I want to probably argue is to argue that the uh, Belt and Road Initiative is predominantly just a trade thing. Right? Moving beyond, what sort of the trade? Uh, what sort of uh, um, worldview? As an intellectual historian, I'm interested in people's worldview. Um, um, in the following slides, what I want to make a point that I want to make is um, we are predominantly restricted by our worldview. So the way that we see and interact with each other is largely restricted by our own worldview. So in order to understand China, it might be important for us to jump outside the framework or the familiar terminal terminologies which were coined it, uh, or enshrined in our language of international relations or grand strategy. It might be important to think about China outside the grand strategy narrative or outside the IR uh, terminology. What sort of um, um, what's the implication of today's IR um, um, terminology, or what's the implication of today's worldview in large, uh, can be demonstrated on the following slides. Here, um, I play around with the Google search thing, which gives me this diagram. Basically, if we focus on the term civilization, right, um, we could see the this is the British spelling of civilization. And uh, the frequency of the word civilization appeared in English language uh, works reaches peak roughly in the 1880s. Now, what's so peculiar about a British spelling civilization reaches peak in 1880? If we dig out our history, history uh, knowledge, we will know this is the moment of the scramble of Africa. The scramble of Africa in British Empire was a pe very peculiar moment that um, many of the British intellectuals feel the obligation to justify their action in Africa, why they're trying to address the question, do the British Empire or the British people have the right to rule the entire world? Civilization naturally comes to um, as a convenient explanation. Here, the next slides, is American spelling of civilization. There are two, roughly two peaks. Um, starting from the post-First World War time and reaches peak in, 18, uh, in 1940. Now, the peculiar moment of 1940, um, we all know, was the, uh, uh, well, it was the time when America started to break away from its marialism. In 1942, Henry Luce, the publisher of uh, Time and Life magazine, published uh, an article, famous article, in, uh, I think, in 1942, February, in Life magazine. 
which is, by the way, it's a pictorial magazine, but he published a very important article titled The American Century. Now, Harry Luce is, uh, was, uh, was a missionary son. He was born in China. He shared a peculiar interest uh, towards the world. And as any evangelical missionary son, he has a peculiar interest towards the world order, i.e. saving the entire world. So in his article, he said, America had this moral obligation to, pre to reach to the outside world and save and change the human civilization. And consequently, after him, the, 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 the terminology uh, civilization hits a, a crucial point uh, or, or um, 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 hits a peak in the American's intellectual discussion. Now, this type of this, uh, interest towards development and civilization, it has its uh, resemblance or, or has its like dark moment in the uh, so-called civilizing mission. Um, this was... Uh, um, a pictorial depiction of Kipling's famous poem, The White Man's Burden. What I'm interested in this particular picture is what sort of worldview it demonstrates. Here, human civilization or human development is a mountain, it's, which means it's a linear ascent. You can only go forward. And alongside the, pro alongside the process, you definitely need a leader, in this case, America and uh, Britain. And along this process, humankind will, will, will overcome the difficulties such as barbarism, uh, um, um, underdevelopment, and more importantly, the to totalitarian, all sorts of awful, all sorts, uh, all sorts of political system that was considered as awful. And eventually they will reach the peak. This type of linear economic determinist attitude towards the world's development was manifested also in America. This is a um, typical image. There's a famous picture of goddess of Columbia, uh, which manifested the American spirit. Over here, if we, if we take a closer look of what holds in the hands of her, this is a textbook, this is a telegraph line. So it's completely materialistic and also enlightenment. The idea that one, one group of people or one certain type of people will have a higher knowledge of human development and henceforth has the moral obligation to teach and enlighten the rest of the humankind, well, didn't really play very well in human history. Let's go back, go to the uh, 1920s. Well, to address the question, what does uh, what does civilization mean actually in this particular type of worldview in Anglo-Saxon world? Um, again, as a social historian, I, I turn my attention to not so much of well-known intellectual materials. This is. A journal, a magazine, popular magazine published in 1923, uh, uh, titled The Peoples of All Nations. Its publisher is well known for publishing kids' book. Like, um, 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 what I took interest in this uh, magazine is that it demonstrates a quite peculiar type of uh, understanding of how the humankind would proceed and change. In this book, um, the in the first volume of the editorial, it suggests that uh, humankind is essentially animal species, right? So 
Um, henceforth, because uh, the uh, social Darwinist explanation, scientific explanation tells us that um, evolution is inevitable and is always forward-going, so henceforth, human society needs to follow the same trajectory, i.e. racism start to, give, uh, start to burn. Humankind started off from like, very primitive and moved forward to a different level of development. And of course, this development, what drives this development? What drives humankind away from animal kingdom? Argued in this book, commerce. I, again, trade. Trade makes people different. Intriguingly, um, another um, uh, another another editorial in this uh, in this journal um, tells us what is the future of humankind or nations in this case. He argued that uh, humankind have seen some troubled time, especially in the time. Well, remember what, when did this uh, um, journal when was this journal published in 1923? 1923 it was not a particularly good time for Europe, just after the First World War. Loads of intellectuals were left with a question to, to address. Um, since we're so confident in scientific development will change humankind, how come humans still use scientific advancement to create war machines, using it to kill people? So this is a very important question for them to address. Conveniently, for this group of uh, publishers, they found the answer. The answer is, well, there is nothing wrong with the confidence in uh, science and technological development. There is nothing wrong uh, to place our confidence in commerce or change humankind for good. What Germany did was, that, was particular because Germany was arrogant. And it was the level of arrogance that creates the problem. So henceforth, nothing fundamentally wrong with our conviction towards science and technological de determinism, economic determinism, our confidence in commerce, our belief in Western civilization being the advanced civilization. It is just a, a kid that um, with an with a, with a extra large confidence that got things wrong. We can amend it for sure. The similar type of idea, belief towards civilization and to, towards uh, the idea that enlightenment, i.e. there is only one leader uh, in this human, human species, will lead the humankind to a better world, was adopted by Japanese at the time of 19, late 19th century. Famously, if you, could, uh, if you go to Japan, the person who, whose face was still printed on a thousand yen notes was the uh, uh, was the was the famous intellectual that creates the uh, that introduced the idea of civilizing theory or theory of civilization, and that theory of civilization um, led Japan to uh, be the strongest advocator of Asianism or Pan Asianism. So um, the the final point I want to make is. Um, is essentially to address Mark's question, is there a Eurasian idea or vision in China? My answer is no, because the answer is simple. China has a very bitter experience with the idea of grand space, with the idea of panism. Right? The panasianism was advocated by Japan in the early 19th century as a form of uh, sort of salvation. Uh, to change Japan uh, up, or uplift Japan from a stage of um, suffering and then become the leader of the entire Asia. And intrigue, this is not something that I want to show you. 
what I want to you to focus on is the next slide. That narrative of Pan-Asianism manifested in their war propaganda in the 1930s. Now, many, many people will remember the Japanese warfare in the, or in the Second World War time was about colonialism and control. Not many people will actually remember there is also an element of anti-colonialism or anti-imperialism, particularly anti-Anglo-Saxon imperialism embedded in that specific ground strategy narrative. Here is a war propaganda advocating to the uh, to the Indu uh, to to India um, that the, the arrival of a Japanese imperial army was for the purpose and one purpose only to uplift them from the oppression of the British and uh, the American or the white. So that narrative was also heavily race based. Uh, Japan was uh, was trying to portray itself as a savior for the for the yellow species. And then um, Japan was, a, was, a, was, a, was an advocate, or portrayed itself as an advocator for anti-colonialism. Now similarly, if we go back to um, uh, Carl Schmitz, his specific interest in advocating that um, Germany would create some alternative for neoliberal um, um, world order, we could find some re resemblance in the, uh, the pan-Asianist narrative. So one last thing I want to advocate is that instead of looking at China um, uh, through the lenses of this type of panism or grand space, it might be in interested to think China from a historical perspective that, uh, or, or to think that China's focus on the, or on the space, on the grand space, was not necessarily coming out, of from, uh, coming out of a grand space theory that is populated by the narrative and terminologies of international relations, geopolitical struggle. It was much more so in a sense of advocating mutual aid and advocating for self-reliance. So, um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, that pretty much uh, ends the uh, discussion. These are just further slides that showing that uh, China didn't really have a good memory towards panism. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Well, it's uh, quite a bit, very rich for us to think about. We'll have some comments here from Bjorn, please. Right, uh, thank you very much, and thanks for two very interesting um, presentations. Um, I, I don't think I have that many comments, but I rather have maybe a, a couple of questions uh, to the speakers. Um, <clears throat> and, um, well, if, if I will, you know, try to pose questions that sort of connect your two different uh, presentations a bit. Um, so, so uh, uh, Ji Guang, you, you talk about uh, worldviews. You didn't say that much about Chinese worldviews, mm. but sort of, well, prevalent mainly European-American worldviews on, on grand space. But uh, how about what's going on in uh, Chinese foreign policy today and, and the Belt and Road uh, Initiative? Um, what, what kind of worldview is this uh, based on? And you also said that we all can benefit from understanding China sort of beyond a common international relations. 
vocabulary, focusing on great power struggles and so on. So if you try to connect that assumption of yours to this particular foreign policy initiative, what would be an alternative way to understand uh, the Belt and Road Initiative? So that is one question to Jiguang. Um, and to uh, Nadesh, uh, so the topic of this seminar series is on Eurasia. And of course, the Belt and Road Initiative, it's about Eurasia. And when it was launched, it seemed to be quite a bit about Eurasia. However, the scope of this initiative has expanded since. Uh, and what does that tell us about Chinese views on Eurasia? It seems sometimes to me that uh, the Chinese, or at least the Chinese leadership who launched this initiative and the Chinese intellectuals who helped to provide the conceptual backing for these foreign policy initiatives, maybe are not that interested in Eurasia. It seems that Eurasia is always too small for China. China has bigger visions. So is Eurasia in the Chinese contemporary perspective, only a springboard for something vaster and grander. Uh, so, so that's my question to Nadesh, if you please could uh, elaborate a bit on that. And then I have a question that I would like to pose to both of you. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it has to do about the views on Eurasia among ordinary uh, Chinese. Uh, when, when Chinese, not necessarily strategic thinkers and, and top policymakers, think about this concept of, of a Eurasian continent, is this something that has resonance am among Chinese people? How, how do they understand this concept? I is it a concept that brings to mind one particular thing about most Chinese, or is it rather that there exists a plethora of different interpretation of what Eurasia is in China? Or, or is it rather that most Chinese don't really care about Eurasia? I think in Russia, for example, according to my understanding, Eurasia is still a concept that has a certain kind of resonance among, among many ordinary uh, Russians, or at least a few of them. But how, uh, what's the case in China? Uh, because it seems to me also if the Chinese leadership is going to sustain the Belt and Road uh, Initiative and help to create and uh, disseminate an understanding of what Eurasia is also beyond China's borders, it, it has to be based on, or I think it would at least be easier to do so if it based on sort of a, a, a pretty unitary Chinese conception of this uh, concept. So, so that's my uh, question to both of you. How, how do Chinese people in general think about Eurasia? Do they even think about Eurasia? And then how, how do they understand this, this concept? Thank you very much. Um, I wish you had shown the civilization in Chinese at the end because you would see a peak right now yeah, about probably. it. I think that that would be an interesting finding too. Um, yeah, I, when I published my book, 
um, two and a half years ago, I called it China's Eurasian Century. Mm. And I wonder if I had to publish today whether I would choose the same title for precisely the reason you mentioned, because of this expansion of the scope. Um, that was probably not, I, I don't think it was there at the inception of the design. Um, I mean, Eurasia, uh, as it was, um, as it was seen even at the beginning of the Belt and Road um, uh, strategy, was already a, quite a vast expanse. You know, it was already um, there. There are no there are no official maps of uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. There's only one that was published by the Chinese news agency in 2014 that shows there's a there's a kind of a brushstroke uh, across. The, the land and, and another one across the ocean. And that's those two strands that are supposed to, uh, to, to show what the concept was all about. There's never been a detailed map of uh, any countries that were supposed to be involved or anything. So it also showed you that it was more um, maybe something that they called for or wished for than something that already existed. And that ties up to your other question about how do they, the, the you know, uh, Chinese people on the street see Eurasia, uh, <coughs> contrary to the Russians who have lived Eurasia and still live Eurasia just because of their geographic expanse and history. China, as uh, Zhe Guangzhou, has never had except maybe during the Mongols, <laughs> had that wide Eurasian expansion in, in history. So it's a very different perspective. Um, so um, but for me, what was really interesting with the original concept, again, the, the just focused on Eurasia, and already Eurasia plus, you know, it was Eurasia plus the, the, the adjacent, adjacent waters uh, and plus some parts of Africa. So um, just seeing on a map, it was really quite big. Um, what was interesting, I mean, maybe I see too much symbol uh, in it, but what was interesting also was that when you looked at this map published by the, by the Chinese news agency, um, the US and the, the, the American continent was out of the map. Right? So it was a sort of a distant island that didn't even exist. So that also tells you something about the concept. Um, why has it grown so much now? It includes South, the, uh, South, the Oceania, the South Pacific, uh, Africa, Latin America. I think it's because the, it's not necessarily because of the Chinese intellectuals that have provided some ideas back to feeding back into the bureaucracy. Um, I think it's just because of the, the narrative that is uh, shown by the, I mean, the official narrative is that Belt and Road is inclusive, right? That everybody is able to join in. So countries in Africa and countries in Latin America said then to China, oh, it's inclusive. We want to join in. So then Beijing couldn't say, oh, sorry, no, only Eurasians. So it's, they had to expand it this way, I think. So it's not a matter of, um, you know, um, public intellectuals pushing for, for this. I think it's more of a, of a um, 
just a, an enthusiasm by many of the developing world countries um, that wanted to have some of the uh, the investments in infrastructure and that Beijing couldn't say no because again they said it's inclusive and it's open so um, so yeah that's Thanks very much for the question. Uh, I probably could begin by addressing the general question. Is there, an, uh, is there a general public's view on Eurasia? Again, I might have to refer back to anecdote evidence. When I was a uh, young student in China, uh, back in my school days, um, we were in, uh, the geographic book we use tend to portray Europe and Asia from a purely geographic sense, as a land mass, we tend to tell the story from that perspective. Now, things is getting um, things could potentially get a bit of a bit tricky if you put an ism behind it. So, um, so China had a, a peculiar, ba a specific bad uh, um, experience with uh, Asianism or, or, or any sort of ism behind it. Um, so I would say general public took uh, relatively no specific or deep interest towards the concept of uh, Eurasia as a geopolitical idea or grand space idea. But among the intellectuals, you do see that the growing interest towards grand space theory um, people like Mackinder start to come back, although the translation from Mackinder's Heartland Theory was, I think, back in the 1980s, which back then didn't really uh, struck a, a, a response quite strongly. But now people start to reread Mackinder, people like uh, Mahan, um, people start to reread it. But it, again, it's, uh, the readership is limited to a certain amount of intellectuals. Uh, who were either from the legal studies aspect or from the international relations aspect. I have a kind of a cynical um, explanation towards that. Um, it seems like uh, particularly why the international relations theorists or uh, scholars uh, refer back to uh, the, um, in intellectuals or uh, materials that created in the 19th century, is that, or uh, in early 20th century, is that uh, because they don't have a workable theory. Um, the theory that uh, most of the uh, IR scholars uh, right now in China subscribe to seems to uh, be hitting uh, a dead end uh, with the changing, rapidly changing global um, situation or power balance, whatever you name it. And uh, this is a generation that was uh, educated after the, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. So which means they're pretty much they're, all their knowledge comes from the American textbooks. And uh, since uh, even people like uh, Francis Fukuyama start to question the universality of liberal democracy, then um, those international relations scholars definitely need to find something to go back to. They can't obviously go back to a 19th century theory of civilization, um, which of course, um, strikes a, a negative memory. So going even further to European intellectuals, um, because the European empires, particularly the British empire, they don't have that much of a grudge, or very 
close um, contact with the Europe with the British Empire. So um, uh, people like uh, Mackinder began to uh, emerge as a favorable solution. But this links back to uh, your first question: What is the alternative if we can't really resolve resolve our situation, our worldview understanding through uh, IR theories? I guess we just need to be a little bit more creative and down to earth, which is. Um, to uh, explain the current situation. I'm a fervent believer of two things. One is history actually repeats itself. And uh, second, we are what we read. So uh, if uh, collectively we sort of uh, start to subscribe to a way of understanding the world, understanding the past and this current situation, we might, have, uh, we might be able to interact with each other uh, to direct our behavior towards the future based on our worldview, the changing worldview. And that specific alternative, I guess, um, I don't have a, a non-biased, non-partisan explanation or, or, or um, um, explanation to that question. Coming from a historian's perspective, I can only say that uh, I completely trust uh, uh, historical narrative i.e. contextualizing things. Uh, I don't believe that China is abide by a certain type of grand strategy rhetoric. There is no top-down uh, sort of uh, um, under, uh, coherent top-down um, uh, strategy that determines the trajectory of Chinese foreign conducts. It's always situational. It's always sort of uh, um, responsive in a sense, but it is up to the intellectuals to provide some sort of grand narrative to articulate or to, to, to rationalize rationalize that sort of behavior and uh, if, um, and yeah I guess that's my answer we just need to be a little bit more creative thank you thank you very much um, I think I'm going to exercise uh, chair's uh, privilege and ask begin our question we can now go to the questions but I'm going to ask two questions myself uh, I had two and Bjorn asked actually both of them Remarkably, but I had two other questions, so happily I can go back to that, and then we'll um, we'll, we'll open it up. Um, on the question of, these are a little bit more specific, on the question of Mackinder and Spickman, uh, this is really fascinating for me. I'm a, a historian of geopolitical ideas, actually, so I've kind of lived with this stuff, so it's really fascinating to see it in the Chinese context. But I, it does raise questions, because of course Mackinder's original theory didn't talk about China. He was talking about a different part of the, the landmass of Eurasia. Uh, China didn't really fit into that. He didn't sort of view that in as continentalist. And uh, it was an immensely influential, remains today an immensely influential idea, this continental, continentality versus maritime. But it's always very clear, at least historically, which is which. So Mackinder, obviously Britain, uh, you have the Atlantic world is a maritime, you have the heartland, Russia is uh, is continental, Mahan, you mentioned Mahan, Admiral Mahan was American theorist of the same type. Uh, Germany, which is very important too, is mixed between continental and so it's all carefully calibrated. Um, I'm not quite sure how China maps onto that, uh, which is very fascinating. I mean, uh, you know, that you say Mackinder's there, of course he's everywhere. I mean, he's perennial. Every generation rediscovers Mackinder and they'll, they'll continue, to, I'm sure they'll continue to do that. Uh, into the future, but I don't see, I mean, help me please, I don't see how Mackinder, how this continental maritime distinction maps on to the situation that we are looking at and you, what you described so well today in China, which seems to be actually just both, and you have this notion of a, of a combination of the two. So if you could elaborate, because the whole 
dynamic, the potency of this Mackinder model is the notion of a conflict and what happens when these two geopolitically conflict. And we're, uh, one doesn't have to accept that model. And I think what you're talking about is a very good way maybe of trying to move beyond it or to look at something else saying, well, but you don't understand this in terms of a conflict. You actually have both dynamics working. And so if you could talk about that. And with Xi Guang, there's so many things uh, to say. Uh, you gave us two, your n-gram, I like that very much, the n-gram, that was the, the, the chart of the uh, usage of the term. You very nicely, yes, you have the British spelling and then you throw up the American spelling, the Z instead of the S, and you get a, a very interesting, slightly different constellation, which is very fascinating. But there's another spelling you could have used, because you could have gone back to the German origins, which is, uh, in, in a sense, you know, as important as anything, the Spenglerian origins of this concept for today, which would be a different word, Kultur, and then they have Zivilisation, but that's with a Z. It doesn't quite, so that would be interesting. But I mentioned Spengler, uh, uh, not because historically, but uh, he has a different, his idea of civilization was different. His idea of civilization was, was not one. It was manifestly not a Eurocentric. It was manifestly one of a kind of historical equality as uh, history moved through different civilizations, and it ends up at a particular one, but there was no sense that this particular one was a better one. He was actually he was quite clear about that. And it's important because if we think about civilization today, and we think about people like Samuel Huntington, uh, who you might not like, uh, fair enough, but his ver was a very Spenglerian idea of no sense. In a sense, it corresponded to what you were describing from the Chinese side a little bit, this, uh, this awareness of uh, this resistance to to embrace a kind of universalism that you were describing. So I just wanted to, to point that out, that there's a civilization is, I mean, you can you take your, your, your so, you know, that's one legacy of the word, but there are other legacies, so thank you. Well, thank you. Um, th that question between, uh, the divide between continental and maritime, it, it, um, it's a question that's posed internally in China as well. There's a lot of debate. Um, there was um, 10 years ago, um, 10, 15 years ago. Now it's still there, but not as important uh, about what China's own identity as a continental or maritime power. And tradition, I mean, historically, China is clearly a continental power, and there's no doubt about that. Um, but it's the you know the opening of its uh, of its economy uh, in the 1980s and the growing expansion of its economic interests have now made China um, interested in in the maritime as well. Um, but m I don't think that China considers itself as a sea power the way Mahan described it. Or, or the way you would describe the U.S. You know, it's not about controlling all the global commons, and it's, it's and certainly not all the sea. Um, it's just about protecting some interests and some sea lanes of communication that actually link towards the continent. Yeah. So it's a little bit different. Uh -huh. It's not. It, yeah. It's a. It's a sort of a hybrid model, maybe. Um, but I don't think that China considers, and, and probably not in a, in a you know, a short future, as a sea power. Um, so it doesn't mean that it doesn't have maritime interests. It's building a, a navy uh, quite rapidly to protect those maritime interests as well. But it's not, um, it's not the definition of its, of its power.
Thanks, Mark. Um, to respond, uh, if I may add a little bit to that, uh, the Mackinder and uh, the Mahan's uh, enthusiasm. Um, I think China, for one, for, for for a period of time, did share a very strong interest in uh, in, in the difference between sea power and land power. That was in the 1980s. Mm. There is a strong popular culture reference uh, at that time, but. The approach when China uh, or China took when uh, looking at the sea power and land power was quite a from a defeatist perspective, i.e., they were considered that the land power or the agricultural power uh, would be considered as backward, as China, the future of China lies within China becoming uh, uh, what they call the blue civilization, which is the referring reference towards the, uh, the sea power. Um, it has its uh, attra uh, uh, attraction, so like. In the 80s, probably reminiscences in the uh, in the 90s, and some of the people who are in charge today were educated back then, which means today there are still still certain group of uh, elites, social elites, political elites, and intellectual elites will share sympathy towards that narrative. But um, it, it for, well, intriguingly, or probably arguably fortunately enough, you don't see uh, this type of difference, uh, separation of between land power and the sea powers manifested in Chinese foreign policy. So this, um, I guess, um, up until now, um, um, you do see, particularly in this current administration, you, you do see that the reference towards um, um, Afro-Asianism start to emerge. Um, a land, uh, it's not a landmass, it's precisely uh, a reference towards the Cold War sort of uh, um, conflict, uh, uh, emphasizing that what binds people together is not necessarily their physical presence, but more importantly, their shared ideological or historical experience, i.e. being the oppressed, uh, being the subject of this sort of uh, 19th century imperial expansion, and then becomes, uh, uh, share the experience of um, being a colony or semi-colony, henceforth, the Afro-Asian country. So this is manifested in Xi Jinping's talk in uh, in 2015, when he, for the first time after after decades, he was the first Chinese leader to revisit Bandung and gave uh, a speech there. And that speech, I, I, I personally do find it's quite uh, intriguing, um, in, in the sense that he didn't really sp speaks in a sense of uh, power balance, speaks in the sense of alliances. Uh, he speaks, he refers quite strongly to the historical memories of being oppressed, which is precisely the, the Bandung legacy when they were firstly initiated this type of third world um, 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 collaboration. And then um, two years after, I think it was 2017-ish, I don't remember quite clearly, Clearly, um, he did a speech in Davos uh, talking about China's take on international commerce. Um, it, uh, he's not speaking in a sense of economic competition, but in a strong, um, well, manifested quite strongly that uh, commerce, what is important in international commerce is not to create interdependency, but mutual um, support and in a sense of collective or in the, in a sense of a collective development. And uh, this idea again was uh, was manifested in the 2019 speech uh, during the Asian, uh, I 
I think it is called Asian culture or civilization meeting, whatever. Um, and then he specifically, again, referred back to a shared identity of Asian and Asia. And that Asia does not have um, a, a leadership in, uh, on, on the contrary. What defines Asia is, is its multiplicity i.e. it has a, a multiple sort of like religious belief, uh, different ways of uh, uh, political conducts. And then uh, although recognizing this multiplicity, there is still, he recognized that there is a possibility of working together. And I think it is it, this particular type of uh, collaboration, not based on a shared identity, um, but based on a shared experience, and which could potentially cultivate um, 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 a the growth of, of multiplicity is something that needs to be um, understood further. Um, this is beyond the, 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 the Spingener and, uh, and the Huntington's idea of sort of culture. Thank you very much. Okay, well, <laughs> really very rich, very interesting. So we'll open the floor. I see immediately we have a question, please. Go ahead. Well, uh, thank you very much for the extremely interesting uh, expose. Um, I would like to, uh, maybe this may sound as a slight provocation, I hope not, uh, to confront and to see how could this uh, fit into your, what you have said. Uh, because I was uh, listening to you and uh, um, occurred to me, you know, uh, the, this book by uh, Henry Kissinger on, on China, where uh, I think is, uh, he, he explores the uh, parallel between uh, uh, two games, uh, chess on the one side and uh, Wei Qi. I'm sorry about the pronunciation. <laughs> and uh, uh, where he says that whereas uh, chess is based on confrontating, uh, on confrontation against uh, competitors, then Wei Qi is based uh, not on confrontation and precisely on avoiding confrontation. Of course, he then explores this and goes further and talks about encirclement and drawing in your competitors to kind of, uh, you know, maneuver behind them, etc., etc. So my question is, how would this fit into what you uh, said and uh, which I found, uh, you know, even fascinating? Thank you very much. It's either way. Either way. We can take maybe two more questions. Yeah. Okay. Then there was a question over here, I think. Thank you. Uh, uh, not exactly a question, but a comment, and I'll try to be brief. But I'm fascinated, especially by Professor Yin's series of, of cartoons and maps and so on, about these big, big movements historical movements, first European colonization, especially would you emphasize trade routes and all that sort of thing, and then the, the expansion across the North American con continent, you had pictures of that, and now we have the, the BRI, the, the, the uh, Belt and Road thing. The question always is, in everyone's mind it seems to me, who benefits from this? And it's always placed in terms of good things, civilization, Christian movement, and, and uh, empowerment of, of the various kinds. One always suspects that the person is, that the agent is after domination, 
and enrichment of itself, the British, and so on. And these things are always, and there's some suspicion about the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. It's all for China's benefit. But it seems to me, in the long run, these things are always balanced, and I was very positively, I reacted positively in my mind about the description of the soft benefits being emphasized, and also by speeches in China, that in fact, these big movements generally do result in empowerment. And in the Asian situation today, by the magnificent book by Mr. Panach called The Future is Asian, I don't know if people know about that, this is empowering the whole region. It's not just China reaching out, but, but it's, it's creating a system of, of all kinds, physical and mental and uh, economic and so on, empowerment. Countries like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan are really benefiting from this. And, and uh, international commerce in this area is not done in dollars, it's not done in euros, it's not done in renminbi necessarily. It's Asian, new kinds of, of finances. So the whole thing I think is very exciting and I, I think one should be not too skeptical about China and not just fo focus on China all the people taking part of this are benefiting or being exploited to various extents. That, that was my comment. Thank you. I think we can have one more question, maybe the young man right here. Uh, this question is for Nadezh, uh, not necessarily related to Eurasia, but uh, more so China and the South China Sea, uh, with the Belt and Road being, as you said, like all-inclusive um, do you think China would use that as a way to legitimize their territorial claims? Uh, or in your opinion, how do you think they'll deal with that conflict um, while providing opportunities for the other Southeast Asian countries to feel included? Okay, let's break it there. We'll give our speakers a chance to respond. I don't play chess and I don't play Go, so I don't I don't know which game we're playing here. Uh, it sounds a little bit like a cliche when we talk about China's grand strategy and 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 compare it to a to a pawn game. Um, but yeah, maybe uh, in in that case, if you if you want to continue on that imagery, you might think that China is playing the Weiqi game. So it's uh, putting different uh, um, marbles on the map uh, that can be useful in the long run, not pushing directly the queen or king uh, to the other side of the, of the chessboard. Um, uh, question about empowerment. Uh, I, I am more skeptical than you are about the empowerment of the whole region and probably not of the people in the region um, and how countries are exactly benefiting from it. Um, we need to see in the long run how this goes, but the first few years of Belt and Road don't give me the impression that countries are really benefiting. There's a lot of promises of investment um, that are not um, done in reality. Um, when you think about Belt and Road, it's mostly about loans that add to the debt burden of countries that are already very weak. Um, 
I'm saying add to the burden. It's already there, um, but it adds to it. Um, local people don't necessarily benefit from, from those uh, uh, projects. Uh, in some areas, uh, they displace populations uh, without asking them uh, what they think about it. There's environmental costs to it. You might think that uh, this is, uh, you know, the, the cost of progress, right? Uh, you need to put a road or a railway somewhere, and then you need to have a population co cost or a, an env environmental cost, but it's not necessarily the case um, that it should be done this way. It's a very elitist uh, approach, so local populations don't have their say most of the time uh, on these projects. Um, so, and there's no real thinking behind it. The United Nations had a trans-Asian uh, transportation program that was supposed to link countries all across the continent in the 1960s. Um, this is not what this is all about. It's basically uh, trying to respond to, um, um, it's aligning uh, the needs, the so-called needs of the local countries to what uh, China can finance. Um, and it's not necessarily thought as a, as a coordinated effort on, at, at, the, at the regional level. It's not really creating linkages, not necessarily. Sometimes it does, but not always. Um, so, and is it about China's benefit? It is thought to be about China's benefit. The drivers for this are mostly about, you know, creating uh, economic growth for China. Uh, State-owned enterprises going and contractors are Chinese and workers are Chinese in most of these projects. Um, the financial integration and the swap agreements are in Genminbi, so it goes back to China. The loans and the different um, um, investments go back to Chinese companies. Um, it's about also uh, trying to alleviate the differences in, in uh, development within China, anchoring the poorest uh, provinces to a broader region. So these are the real drivers behind, behind it. Um, so we'll see if it benefits the region. We'll have we'll have we'll have to see. But for now, I am really skeptical about it, and not to say um, anything about um, the the standards that come with those loans and projects uh, that are not according the international standards. Um, no transparency, corruption, no um, no open binding. Um, n not uh, the conditions that uh, international financial institutions ask from countries whenever they are doing the same kind of uh, contracts um, in terms of, again, transparency and open bidding and uh, support for uh, civil society, anti-corruption measures, etc. So we'll see. Um, Belt and Road as a way to legitimize its uh, territorial claims in the South China Sea it's, I think Belt and Road is, uh, or those investments are used, or investments or, or loans, or the economic incentives in general are used to um, uh, create some leverage and get some political um, uh, results uh, that are befitting China's interests. So it's, it's there too, it's very difficult to see it 
So, um, I mean, in the so sh uh, short term, how would that if affect the positions of the different claimants in the South China Sea? But uh, um, if you think about how to uh, maybe come towards an understanding um, at the ASEAN level, it's creating, I mean, China's uh, influence is already creating a lot of dissensions inside of the ASEAN. Uh, with Laos and Cambodia being certainly very much anchored in its uh, sphere of influence. Um, and so if you think about maybe a code of conduct vote or something like that, you might think that maybe you won't have a consensus um, and ASEAN works on consensus basis. So you won't probably have a consensus on the decision that's made on the, on, on the South China Sea. But um, um, China is saying that there's no multilateral um, you know, um, um, solution to this. It's more on a bilateral basis. Um, and this is going to be more and more difficult for countries that, again, have are, are confronted between, I mean, they're, they're, there's a tension between their national sovereignty and also the, the, the economic leverage that uh, China is using more and more to influence their decisions, that's for sure. So um, that's a complicated answer to your question. Okay, thank you. Yuguan? Yes. Um, to, I, I think I'll just begin by uh, um, talking on the second question, if I may. Um, I mean, <laughs> when I was little, um, I was born in the north part of China, and uh, if I want to travel to Shanghai, I need to go on the uh, railway. And that railway journey is 30, oh, well, three days, uh, three days and three nights, so point all, all in all 72 hours. And I have fantastic experience uh, uh, account in the, on the, along the railway line. Why? Well, whenever you stop, vendors, local vendors will come go, come closer to the railway line. Doesn't matter if this is, uh, as long as the train slows down, local vendors will come approach closer to the railway and holding their local produce and trying to sell to the to the to the to the passengers. And I had a great experience. So that was the first time I taste the uh, the, uh, the the barbecue chicken from the Shandong area. I drank the local drink, whatever. Just along the line, it was a fantastic three days. So what I, I guess what I want to say is the Belt and Road should be understood in a, uh, in a, in a different manner, simply because the physical presence of a road, unlike the previous um, uh, trans-Indian Ocean and transatlantic ocean trade, which is revolving predominantly alongside major trade ports. Now, the difference between ports and, uh, and land ports, or, or seaports and land ports, are significant. Seaports you basically connect dot to dot, whereas land ports, you can't do that. You have to go along the same uh, uh, the route. Now, uh, interestingly, the word belt and road in Chinese, it also means zone. So uh, if we take a look at the belt and road, we, we, should, uh, we, we would see that uh, instead of connecting different dots on the map, which was the way that we always write about global history starting from the 19th centuries onwards. Now it shifts the attention to a landmass where people actually live. Nobody lives on the sea. And um, 
And through this connection, I think it will be uh, important for us to see the reality of the world, which is difference or multiplicity. Whereas experience told us if we connect different dots on the map, if there are all trade ports, sea trade ports or air, air, airports, they all look the same, a similarity. Um, well, the, the, the ocean and uh, the maritime trade and air trade creates similarity, whereas land trade well, at least from my sort of uh, conviction, I want to believe it, it creates alternative to the narrative that we're so used to starting from the 18th and 19th century and onwards. And then it goes back to uh, the first question. Um, although, well, I, I do believe that there is no crystal ball that we could, the crystal ball that we can hold to, to predict the future. But I'm, I, I do believe that it is important for us to believe in a better future through the evidence that we collected right now. I believe in the power of narrative. I believe the power of empowerment. So um, the story of, uh, of Kissinger's and uh, uh, the, 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 the um, anatomy between like, uh, chess player and, uh, and, uh, and go player, um, I think it is right and wrong at the same time. Uh, first of all, I do agree that uh, there is some sort of uh, difference between these two games. The first one suggests a, bi um, so like a bipolar sort of relationship. There is a zero-sum game. But in the end, goal game also leads to a zero-sum game. Um, one, one individual will have to win and the other will lose. Well, of course, there's a draw, but in rare cases, uh, probably more so than the chess game. But it might not necessarily be that way. Um, the, idea, the understanding of the world order as there definitely needs to be a winner, there definitely going to be a loser, um, is rather modern or is rather determined by the historical experience starting from 19th century and onwards. Whereas um, uh, there is historical moment in human development that suggests the possibility of, I don't know, uh, empowerment or mutual benefit. It seems like China had a hard time to convince the outside world that there is a built road will bring forward co uh, prosperity and mutual benefit. It is the word mutual benefit that strikes people as difficult to understand because we're hardwired to believe that there is, the world essentially is a zero-sum game. But uh, I, will, I will go back again to the anecdotal um, uh, evidence. In 1974, uh, a journalist coming from uh, LA, uh, LA Times, I believe, Los Angeles Times, visited Egypt. Um, that was Sadat's time. And he in interviewed a guy, uh, a, peasant, a local peasant, a local farmer, uh, no, local peasant, uh, and uh, all of uh, a labor, probably, I don't remember specifically. And then uh, right beside uh, the Aswan Dam, and he asked him what he thought on the Aswan Dam. And he, of course, said, this is a wonderful uh, experience. We feel so empowered. And then after the interview, he, 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 he requests, the journalist requests, if I can take a picture of you. Of course, um, the, the, the local labor said, fine, take a picture proudly, presenting himself in front of the dam. And then the things take, start to take an interesting turn. The journalist took out money and decided to pay that, um, that local labor. And that person, that Egyptian, felt offended. And this is exactly the type of a story that um, sort of invites me to think what we have been missing. It seems like we feel like we, we, we've been hardwired to believe that empowerment is just about giving people money. 
Empowerment is about uplifting people from poverty. It's about using economic method to recognize the individual's value. Whereas for the most of the time, or at least for the most of the time after the Second World War in the third world countries, empowerment is about the ability to control themselves and to write history. And it was precisely that uh, in that moment, the journalists felt that there is a there is a gap. There is a there is a gap between him and the Egyptian peasants. There is something that the journalist living in the society that he he, he deems as universal fails to to understand the behavior and the worldview from the other side of the world. And I think it is it is it is it is important for us to understand there is an alternative over there. Um, a, uh, one thing I always tell uh, uh, talk talk about in my uh, third world project is the modernization and developmental theory that we're focusing on is so focusing on uplifting people from poverty, whereas fail to recognize that it is inequality in the third world that uh, strikes people's attention. It is not about giving people uh, giving people handouts. It is about making individuals, making general publics to feel that they're part of the grand narrative of humankind. And it is precisely that sort of initiative, transforming the, 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 uh, the pop or giving the possibility of narrating the world history, not from seaports, not from similar locations, cosmopolitan major cities, but from a land, large landmass that has historically been ignored in our narratives, or well, probably in a couple of years later, or 100 years time, historians write the 21st century history, they might have to shift their attention uh, away from Shanghai, Calcutta, New York, and then start to pay attention to Central Asia.